The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. Hebrews 4.11 Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. This is God's word. During the Great Awakening, the great revival of the 1700s, one of the foremost preachers of the gospel was George Whitfield. And at that time, in the city of Bristol in England, there was a group of rebellious young men who made a point of mocking Christianity and mocking the preaching of George Whitfield and others. Whitfield had problems with his eyes from his youth, and so he had the appearance when he preached of being cross-eyed. And so he was deridingly called Dr. Squintum. This gang of young men loved mocking Whitfield and disrupting meetings where the gospel was preached, and one of them by the name of Thorpe became skilled at imitating Whitfield in delivering mock sermons at the local pub in Bristol. One night as he was doing this, reading from a printed sermon of Whitfield and preaching it in derision with his eyes crossed and mimicking Whitfield's mannerisms, Thorpe suddenly stopped and sat down, trembling and heartbroken. The word of God had pierced his heart even as he was mocking it. His aim was to taunt and ridicule, but we might say he accidentally converted himself. Or rather, the power of the word of God penetrated his soul and cut him to his heart. And Thorpe ended up becoming a prominent leader of the revival in Bristol. What an example of the living and active power of God's Word and how it is able to penetrate the hardest heart. Here in Hebrews 4, we find a warning and an appeal to Christians who were in danger of giving up. They had received the Word of God with joy about 15 years before this point, and they had received it with persecution at that time, But then, for a time, the persecution apparently abated, but now it was beginning again, and they were in danger of giving up the faith. And so the book of Hebrews is a call to persevere in faith in Christ. And here, in chapters 3 and 4, there's an extensive passage where they are urged to remember the negative example 
of the Israelites in the wilderness who refused to believe God's word and who turned away from God in unbelief and disobedience to him. And so verse 11 says, let us therefore strive to enter that rest, speaking about the rest we have in Christ that will be finally realized when we see him face to face. He's saying, let's persevere, let's strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience, speaking of the unbelief of the Israelites. And then we are given the summary in verse 12 of the searching power of the word. Four, he's connecting that to verse 11. Four, the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. What do we learn here about God's word? Consider with me first, the word of God is living and active. It's living and active. The mention of the disobedience of the Israelites in verse 11 leads to this declaration of the nature of God's word. It's living. It's powerful. Their disobedience and unbelief was disobedience to the very word of God. It's interesting, back in chapter 4, verse 2, the author calls it good news. He refers to it as good news. He says, for good news came to us just as to them. The Israelites had the good news, the gospel. But, he says, the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith to those who listens. It wasn't mingled with the hearing of faith in their hearts. You and I must realize that of all the books in the world, and there are lots of books, of all the writings in the world, all the websites, all the blogs, all the texts, all the tweets, all these things, there is something unique about the written Word of God. It is unlike any other word. Second Timothy 3.16 says, it is breathed out by God. Psalm 119.93 says, I will never forget your precepts, for by them you have given me life. Similarly, Psalm 119.50, this is my comfort in my affliction, for your word has given me life. The word of God is living. John 6.63, Jesus says, the words that I speak to you are spirit and they are life. This theme is repeated again and again. And not only is the word living, it's active. It is powerful. That familiar verse, Isaiah 55, 11, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose, God says, and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Clearly, God is saying, my word is powerful, it is active, it accomplishes all I intend. He is declaring that he works his will through his word, it is powerful. We know this is true in conversion, in turning us from darkness to light. We could have testimonies from everyone here about all those who have come to faith in Christ, which is most in this room, I would guess, and about how God used his word in your life. Maybe a great variety of, of 
uh, stories about how this was done, sermons, friends, Bible studies, books, all these different ways. Clearly, one of the main themes of all of our stories would be God's Word piercing our hearts. The Word of God applied to our hearts by the Holy Spirit at some point. 2 Timothy 3.15, Paul says of Timothy, from childhood, you have known the Holy Scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. And so Peter writes in 1 Peter 1.23, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding Word of God. And so the Word of God is like an, an imperishable seed. It sinks into our hearts, it pierces our hearts, and then it springs up by the work of the Spirit into eternal life through faith in Christ. So my question for you at this point is simply, have you experienced the living and active power of the Word of God in your heart and life, cutting to the core of your heart, showing you your need for Christ. Yes, exposing your sin, but also opening your eyes to the good news of forgiveness in Christ and to a right relationship with God through the Savior. Have you experienced that power of the Word in your life? Or are you holding God's Word at bay, as it were, hardening your heart, seeking to turn away from the Word of God? R. Kent Hughes describes his experience as a boy with the living and active word. He says it this way. He says, I was 12 years old when I came under the knife of God's word. The cut went deep, deeper than blood, as they cut my soul in gracious surgery. He says, I was cut with a clear understanding that though I was an outward son of the church, I was not a son of God. This left me aware that I was a sinner and outside the spiritual mystery that others in the church shared. The cut hurt, and I wanted healing. The other cut, he says, that the knife brought was the conviction that Jesus Christ was God and that he had died on the cross for my sins. This was a totally new conviction, and it throbbed with an almost sweet, unrequited pain. God's word had surgically prepared my soul for an ultimate healing operation. I remember everything that I did happened. My pastor directed me to read John 1.12 from my tiny King James Version. But as many as received him, to them he gave the power to become sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. Oh, how my heart ached, for that is what I wanted more than anything else. Then he pointed me to Romans 10, 9 and 10. And I read aloud, If thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. And as I read, the lights came on. It was as if the marrow of those verses were sucked off the page and into my soul. I did believe. How relieved I was as I wept. I can still see my tears through blurred eyes on the dusty concrete floor and confess my sins and receive Christ as my Savior. Before I left, my pastor had me turn to Philippians 1.6. Being confident of this, he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. And so Hughes says, that night by flashlight in my sleeping bag, I read those verses over and over with a welling joy. 
And before I went to sleep, I took a borrowed soft red pencil and underlined them. 37 years have passed, and occasionally I take out the worn little Bible and read those precious words again. Thus began my experience with the penetrating power of God's word. One man's testimony of the word cutting into his heart with saving power, showing him the fullness of Christ. Yes, there's great variety in the way people come to know Christ, but one of the always present themes is the living and active Word of God. Have you come to know its power in your life? Secondly, we learn from our text that the Word of God works in our hearts as the piercing sword of the Spirit. Verse 12 describes it in these ways. At the end of the verse, it's sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. The Word of God works like a sword, it says here, like a sharp two-edged sword. We don't have a lot of swords that most of us use. Maybe we could think of more of the analogy of a laser cutting into us. I'm always amazed at how eye surgery is done with laser technology. A laser cuts into the eye, and it certainly cuts, but the intention and the result is to wound, to cut, in a way to heal, so that ultimately the eye is healed and works again. What amazing technology that is. And so it is, the word is like a sword. It's sharp. It cuts into our inmost being with the goal being to bind us up, to wound and yet to heal, to give us a true knowledge of ourself and yet to give us a true knowledge of Jesus Christ. How does this work? Well, it works in converting us to Christ, but it also works in sanctifying us, in helping us to progress until glory, until we see Christ face to face. I think of the problem that Scripture describes in terms of deceitful desires that Christians fight against. Ephesians 4.22, speaking about the Christian's warfare and growth, it says that we're to put off our old self, which belongs to our former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. Christians, to put off the old self, to put on the new self, the old self is corrupt through deceitful desires. This problem of our wrong desires, even desires for good things that goes astray. And we know that at the heart, at the base, at the foundation of all wrong deeds and all wrong words is the problem of deceitful desires, that war within us, war against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. These desires are deceitful because they deceive us. They lie about life. They lie about the world. They lie about what is really good and best and right for us. Think of the power of God's Word described here in our text, that it's like a two-edged sword. And the analogy is used that it divides joints and marrow and even soul and spirit as if it could actually divide, as if those are two different things. The author is not describing Christian psychology so much as it's describing the very uh, piercing nature of God's Word. What it does is it exposes these deceitful desires. It exposes our greed and our anger and our hate. It shows us our covetousness, our envy, our lust. 
It lays bare our jealousy, our selfishness, our pride. This is the power of God's Word in our lives. As the Word comes to us and and cuts in this way, how do we respond? Well, we must believe the Word of God by the power of the Spirit. We must believe the Word, truth of God's Word, to defeat and to unmask these lies, these deceitful desires. As Galatians 3.5 puts it, having begun by the Spirit, are you now made perfect by the works of the law? In other words, by willpower in obeying the law as the works of the law. But no, it says, by hearing with faith. Sanctification is fundamentally by hearing with faith. We receive the Word. We believe the Word. We act on the Word of God. It cuts to our hearts. Think of the battle in this way. As the Word exposes these deceitful desires, as it pierces our hearts and reveals the lies we are tempted to believe every day, the Word of God also points us to Christ. It points us to the glory of Christ and the love of Christ for us and the sufficiency of Christ and the Word of Christ which calls us to walk according to His Word And what happens is, as we fight this battle of faith against the deceitful desires that are right there for each one of us, this day, this week, this year, by the hearing of faith, we turn away from the lies, and we turn away more and more from the deceitful desires, and we look to Jesus Christ. Yes, we look to Him to forgiveness. We know He forgives us, but we also look to Him for the new power that He gives to turn from such desires and to walk in the way of righteousness in Christ. You see, deceitful desires seem appealing. The world has an allure. We all know that's true. Deceitful desires offer a benefit of some kind. It's Satan's bait-and-switch technique. You know, when you throw a fishing line in with a hook, you put that nice worm on there or that nice lure The idea is the fish sees the bait and bites and finds out, whoops, there's a hook on there. That could be descriptive of Satan's and the world and our flesh and the deceitful desires that lead us astray. But as the Word of God works in us, we are able to see the hook for what it is. And we're able to remind ourselves of the immeasurable and superior benefits of fellowship with Jesus Christ. The Word sets that forth. We believe that the Word of God yields more joy in Christ than all the empty pleasures that lure us away from Christ. That's the power of the Word, cutting, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the hearts. No wonder Jesus prays to the Father in His high priestly prayer of John 17, and He prays, to the Father, for the disciples, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. How we need the word of God to work in our hearts. It's like a spiritual antibiotic. You know how antibiotics are such wonderful medical gifts to us that we have some kind of infection, and the antibiotic we take seeks out that infection and kills it. The Word of God works that way with sin in our hearts. We take it in, we receive it by faith, and it works in us like a spiritual antibiotic to search out and destroy remaining sin. And the question is, are you submitting your hearts, your thoughts, your life to the powerful, piercing, life-giving Word of God? 
it's interesting, that word discerning. It discerns the thoughts and intentions. That's the word from which we get our word critic. It's the Greek word judging. The word discerns, it judges our hearts. It tells us the truth about ourselves. And we need that. One of the gifts I received for Christmas was a TomTom GPS. My old one was defunct. And yesterday we took this new GPS unit to the Philadelphia airport to take our daughter back to the airport to fly out, kind of experimenting. I knew the way to the airport, so if it didn't work, that was okay. And my daughter said, Dad, do you know the way? I said, yes, your dad has a steel trap mind. You know, he always knows. And she said, sure, Dad, yeah. So we had the GPS with us just in case, you know, we got lost. We didn't get lost, you'll be glad to know. But we went to turn it on. It didn't turn on. Hmm. Of course, when we got home and read the directions, we found that you had to hold the on button on for 10 seconds to turn it on. We just, we tried all these different ways. Always good to read the directions first. But my point is, here we were, a brand new TomTom GPS, all these maps, you know, technologically stuffed in there, all these bells and whistles technologically of this machine, and all of it useless unless it's on, right? If it's turned off, it doesn't do much good. And so we might say for God's word, if the Bible is sitting on our shelf day after day, week after week, if we're not seeking to fill our mind with the word of God and let our hearts be searched by it, it will not be used by God to direct your steps and give light to your path. If you're hardening your hearts against it, you can sit here and hear the sermon preached and the words in some sense go into your ears and maybe register in your brains in some way, but if you're not seeking the Lord in His Word to no effect, you must turn it on, so to speak, by reading it and crying out to the Spirit of God to give you eyes to see. The Spirit of God pierces our hearts by the power of the Spirit. The Word of God so works. And finally, we see the Word of God brings us face-to-face with the assurance, with the awesome God and judge of all. The Word of God shows us God the judge. Notice the close connection between verses 12 and 13. It's speaking in verse 12 of the Word of God discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And then in verse 13, it says, And no creature is hidden from his God's sight but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. The word brings us face to face, in a sense, with God and God's searching gaze and the fact that God is the judge of all. There's a story that's told about the great American astronomer Samuel Alfred Mitchell, that one day he was observing the sun through his telescope as it descended. And I imagine he had some filters on it so that his eyes wouldn't be hurt by the sun. But as he saw the sun descend, and just as it was setting, and as he followed it down, there came into the view of his telescope the crest of an orchard-covered hill some seven miles distant. And Dr. Mitchell observed two boys in that orchard, two boys stealing apples. One of the boys was picking the apples while the other boy stood guard to make sure that no one would see them. All in vain, of course. Well, what a picture of the all-knowing gaze of God. Proverbs 15.3 says, The eyes of the Lord are everywhere, keeping watch on the wicked and the good. 
Psalm 90, verse 8, you have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. And so our our text is describing the same point. This God before whom our hearts and our sins are laid bare, it says, they're exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. It's like we come before the judge in a court case. And the judge has the notes of our case. He knows everything about our case. He knows everything. Yet with God, it goes even beyond that. He knows our very thoughts. All the shredded documents of our lives that we would attempt to get rid of before God, he can piece them all together. He knows them all. He doesn't even have to do that. That's the God with whom we have to do. And if this morning you are not trusting Jesus Christ, if you are not taking refuge in him, that's a very sobering, it's almost a terrifying thought to think of such a God who is the judge of all and before whom we are all naked and exposed. And our only refuge is Jesus Christ. That's why the gospel really is called good news because that would be very bad news if it weren't for the fact that Jesus came and lived and suffered and died for our sins. And the gospel tells us that Jesus Christ is the refuge for our sin-sick souls. And so in Jesus Christ, our sins are judged in the cross, and we are given the very righteousness of God in Christ. Praise be to him. And the even more amazing thing as you think about it, when you think about the function of the word of God, is that Through Christ, we are given fellowship with God himself. And you think of the word of God being active in our lives. And sometimes we think of the word of God as something that's just external and out there somewhere. We read it. But the goal of the work of the Spirit is to make the word of God, the written word of God, to make it part of our very hearts. And it comes to us with power as the living word of our Savior, Jesus How do we fellowship with Christ through his word? One of the ways is that as we meditate on the word of God, memorize it, take it to heart, that it comes to us as the living word of our Savior, Jesus. And we fellowship with him through his word. We delight in it. It's not the word of a dead God. It's the word of a living Savior who dwells with us as not a guest in our house, so to speak, who has no opinions, or doesn't say anything, just walks around in the house without any words. No, he comes with power, with his word of truth to guide and direct us. He comes as the sovereign Lord of our lives, but it's a sweet fellowship we have with him through his word and the terrifying judgment of God that he knows all and all is naked and exposed. That's no longer terrifying to us because the Savior has called us to himself has saved us from our sins, and now we walk in sweet fellowship with him. What power is the word of God? What power in giving joyful communion with our Savior and Lord? Well, by conclusion, just a few applications to reading the word of God for the new year. Maybe our resolve, most of us here, is to read the word of God. Maybe again this year, maybe with new diligence this year, maybe with a new desire to keep it up this year. What are some brief thoughts about that? Here are three. One, expect resistance. 
Expect resistance. If you're going to resolve by the power of the Spirit to read the Word of God, realize that exposing your heart to God's Word in this spiritual warfare that it always involved will give resistance. It's much easier to watch TV, to read the newspaper, to do anything else, to, you know, fix things around the house, whatever the things that you love to do. Those will come a lot easier than reading God's Word and exposing your heart to it. There is a spiritual aversion in our hearts that's built in because of remaining sin. The spirit is willing, Jesus says, but the flesh is weak. So expect resistance. That's true for all of us. But secondly, seek to have a plan to read God's word. Seek to have a time, a place. It really helps to have paper and pen in hand so that when you read the Word of God, you can write down things that strike you, ways in which God is speaking to you, promises of God, commands of God, things that you learn. It really helps reading the Word, writing yourself. But don't expect, if you're going to hope to resolve to have family devotions this year, that if you, husband and wife, a couple kids, that there's going to come a time that you're just sitting around the kitchen table, the Bible is miraculously open before you, and all the kids are saying, hey, Dad, Mom, can we read the Bible for a while? That's unlikely to happen. You're going to have to plan it. You're going to have to fight for that time. We live in a busy world. All of us have busy lives. Seek to have a plan, both individually and as families, to read God's Word. And then seek to meet with God in his word. It's easy for it to become rote. It's easy just to read it and then forget what you said. You have to be seeking to meet with God, to have God's spirit working on your heart. And there's no easy way. There's no, there's no way that all of us struggle with that in some way. That's the reality of seeking God in his word. And finally, don't give up. Don't give up. Maybe you've planned and tried this many times, reading plans that fall by the wayside. Well, well, don't worry if you're not keeping up with the plan. Don't necessarily try to read three months' worth in one day to catch up. You probably won't get a lot out of it. I mean, it's great to read large portions of the Word of God, but one day at a time. And if you fail for a time, pick yourself off, dust yourself off, go to the Lord in prayer, and begin again. Don't give up seeking the Lord in His Word. And just a word about that, even the sufferings that you go through, often, very often, and some of you may go through sufferings this year that surprise you. The Bible says don't be surprised by the fiery trial which comes to test you. Suffering often is the very lens God gives us to have a deeper understanding of His Word. How often is it at the Thanksgiving service here when people stand up and talk about how God's been at work in their lives that very often the theme is, this year was an unexpected year of suffering for me, but how God was at work. It's very often that we come to deeper understanding of God's Word through the very suffering He sovereignly brings into our lives. Yes, it's hard in suffering to focus on the Word of God, But don't give up. The very suffering that God sovereignly brings very often brings us to a deeper and fuller knowledge of Christ our Lord. And so, as we resolve to walk with God this year, let us give thanks for the living and the active and the piercing Word of God. Amen. Father, we do 
humble ourselves before you and confess that our hearts are often dull and cold. We need to stir ourselves up. We need your spirit to rekindle your work within us. We need your spirit to make the word come alive to us. And we confess that we fail in many ways. We look to you. We pray that you would help our small efforts, our weak resolves, that you would let us look to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. We thank you for the warnings of Scripture about the Israelites and and the call to persevere. Help us to hold both of these equally, Lord, the call to persevere and the gracious offer that you give that you preserve us to the end in Christ. So we look to you and ask you to be at work through your word this year in each one of our lives. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.